I have absolutely no idea how to start this. It's awkward because I don't have any podcast music or anything yet. I'm still trying to figure all this stuff out. And I don't really know how to talk to myself in a room, so it's it's awkward. <laughs> but uh, we're doing it, so here we go. Um, welcome to episode one of In a Nutshell. My name is Rachel. I'm your host. Sorry about that. This week we are talking about Venezuela. I knew almost nothing about Venezuela starting this. Maybe I'm just um, all by myself. I really don't know. But the whole reason why I started this podcast was to get a little bit less dumb. So <laughs> for all you people out there who are just like me and feel like you know nothing, we are in this together to learn about these things and be a little less dumb. Okay, hi. So Venezuela. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the American Revolutionary War inspired a lot of other colonial freedom wars around the world. The Spanish-American Wars of Independence, heavily guided by Simón Bolívar, led to Venezuela becoming the first Spanish-American colony to declare its independence. In the early 1900s, Venezuela discovered its massive oil reserves, and by 1928, Venezuela was the world's leading oil producer. This is really important. I learned about something called the Dutch disease during my uh, studies, and this is kind of what ruined Venezuela, at least uh, according to what I was reading. Hey, okay, quick aside, not to steal that from the Allergies podcast, which I love so much, and if you've never heard of it, please go listen to it. But I realized that I totally forgot to give my little spiel about the Dutch disease, so I'm going to go ahead and do that now. Um... Okay, so Dutch disease. It's this phenomena that happens primarily in places that abruptly discover they are rich in a natural resource. The influx of cash from exporting that natural resource causes domestic currency to appreciate rapidly. It took a while for me to find any real information about why or how this turns into a bad thing, but with some reading, I got to like a good understanding when a domestic currency appreciates becomes or becomes high value in comparison to other currencies, exports become more profitable and imports become a lot cheaper. That sounds like a good thing, right? Especially within the context of Venezuela's current state of hyperinflation and imports that are so expensive people can't afford to eat, but it's not a good thing. When currency is high value and imports become cheap, Doing business in your country becomes too expensive relative to other places. Local business and development in any area outside of that one natural resource sector, which remains profitable, dries up completely. Unemployment rates skyrocket. People starve, as you see now. It's not a good look. To put this in context, when the first oil drill was created in the early 1900s, all of Venezuela's resources were focused on oil and oil revenues. Government after government promised to use those oil revenues on policies that were a facade. Welfare, public policies that would help people in the short term and bolster the government's approval rating, but never properly develop a balanced state. Venezuela turned into a petrostate. Um, things repeatedly looked great there during times when oil prices were high, but when oil prices are low... The people of Venezuela suffer, and the government continued to take on more and more debt. Okay, back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Bye. 
in the early 1940s, a law was passed that gave the government control over half of all the nation's oil profits. Venezuela was ruled primarily by autocracies and military dictatorships for the next 30 years, including one Marcos Perez Jimenez, or Jimenez, I don't speak Spanish, so I have no idea. He was assigned leader from 1950 to 1952 and then became elected president from 1952 to 1958. This guy is the only person in Venezuela's oil history to use those funds to properly diversify Venezuela's economy. He is largely recognized as being responsible for much of Venezuela's development. He funneled booming oil funds into public works projects and infrastructure, diversification of the economy, developing hydroelectricity, etc. He also led the most repressive Venezuelan government in its history, apparently. No semblance of opposition was tolerated. Anyone opposing the government was painted as a communist and shut down often violently. This is probably why the U.S. supported him. Um, They actually even gave him an award for merit during his time in power. Not the, uh, the best side of that to be on, but you know, good things for the economy at least. <laughs> Democratic elections really began in Venezuela in 1958. This is also when something called the Punto Fio Pact began. This pact was a gentleman's agreement between three main political parties, basically saying that they would always honor the results of the elections, regardless of who won. The pact also made agreement that they would share in the oil wealth of the country. Important to note here, the Communist Party in Venezuela was excluded from participation in that agreement. Over time, the agreement morphed from well-intentioned to preserving democracy, um, to essentially a ruling class of two parties and their constituents. The period from 1958 to 1980 was superficially very prosperous for Venezuela. The government kept people appeased with social programs paid for by the influx in oil cash. Wages were good. People were generally thriving. In the 1970s, the ruling parties finally succeeded in fully nationalizing oil in Venezuela. This was a catastrophic turn of events and allowed essentially all of Venezuela's wealth to be concentrated at the government level. This marks the start of the National Oil Company, acronym PDVSA, which is kind of important in its history. It'll be really important later. This power monopoly continued until the oil glut of the 1980s, when oil was being globally overproduced, causing a major dip in prices. The power of the ruling political parties and the corrupt constitution they wrote in 1961 relied fully on high oil prices. Without a diverse, developing economy or any government savings to speak of, it became super unsustainable very quickly. When oil prices dip, those high-dollar social policy bills still need to be paid. People still need jobs, people still need food. With debts still to pay, the government decided to just print more money. Cue inflation. Venezuela saw close to triple-digit inflation rates during that time. Government funds ran dry, and when they were no longer able to pay off their opposition, they resorted to violence. And the people were fed up. They wanted change. Almost a century of dictators and power-hungry elites had them just done. This desire for change paved the way for the people's president, Hugo Chavez. From the beginning, Chavez talked about wanting higher levels of equality for Venezuela and led what was known as the Fifth Republic Movement Political Party. 
Additionally, he founded the Revolutionary Bolivarian Movement in the 1980s, which was responsible for an unsuccessful attempted coup in 1992. He spent two years as a political prisoner for this, and the people of Venezuela began to see him as a symbol for the rebellion against government corruption. The Fifth Republic Movement Political Party ends up merging with several other parties to become the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, which is the political party of the current regime. Chavez was elected president in 1998 to a very suffering Venezuela. He appealed to an impoverished population tired of living under the greedy, oppressive hands of an elite few. He was what they called a populist president. Populism is characterized by an us versus them message. We, the morally just people, versus them, the untrustworthy, corrupt elites. People began to see their cause as high stakes. This ideology gave Chavez a ton of trust and a lot more room for radical action. In the name of the wealth redistribution Chavez had promised during his campaigning, he launched the Bolivarian Missions, which are a series of social programs aimed largely at reducing poverty and increasing equality across Venezuela. Just as an example, one of those missions involves food security, a promise of Chavez's 1998 campaign platform. Under Chavez, the government was importing food and then subsidizing it for the people, ensuring a consistent price tag and a constant supply of food. But there's no such thing as a free lunch, in this case, literally. The positive side to all these moves is that they kind of worked. Poverty was cut in half, and people were happy for a time. From the outside, Venezuela looked like it was thriving. There are many negative sides, though. Chavez was blowing all of the money the government was making via oil sales. This is not a new problem in Venezuela, just to remind everybody about what we just went through. The period between 1950 and 1980, the government's doing the same thing. Um, at the same time, Chavez was gradually increasing the power centralization in the executive branch of Venezuelan government and restricting the rights of the people. He rewrites the Constitution of Venezuela in 1999, and this is kind of like a crucial turning point. It should be noted that he was really popular at this time, and the people in Venezuela vote on constitutional matters, and the request to write a new one passed with the support of 88% of the voting population. So it wasn't like Chavez was just going rogue and writing a new constitution, not fully at least. This new constitution gave the executive branch a lot more power by removing many of the checks and balances in Venezuelan government, including consolidating the legislative branch from a bicameral assembly to a unicameral assembly. Chavez used this opportunity to eliminate numerous government jobs. Many believe he was trying to purge the so-called elites from their powerful positions. These would be individuals left over in government from the Punto Fio Pact period. This constitution also allowed the president to make laws concerning citizens' rights and expanded the military duties to include maintaining domestic order, which was previously prohibited. Chavez's presidency descended into more and more authoritarianism in the name of public good, and this new constitution paved the way for that. He made some pretty sketchy foreign policy decisions, like arming Colombian rebel soldiers and publicly aligning with Cuba. These are moves that the remaining elites didn't like, obviously. In the economic downturn of 2002, Venezuelans were really angry at Chavez and protests began. Chavez, Chavez felt threatened by their intensity and ordered the military to push back. 
Instead, the military arrested him and placed a temporary president in his seat. Counter-protests erupted. When Chavez was back in power, things were different. People got really scared that the military would turn on Chavez so quickly. Many saw that as the power of the elites um, and felt really threatened by that. So Chavez's populist message now seemed a lot more real. Politicians, career military members, other elites, to Venezuelans, they had shown their true colors. They were willing to turn on the elected president on a dime, dissolve the people's constitution, appoint whoever they wanted in power, and completely throw out the citizens of Venezuela's voting rights. You know, they voted in this guy and the elites could just come in and throw him out whenever. Like, that's a pretty scary thing for a lot of people. It really intensified the depth of the divide in Venezuela, and Chavez capitalized on that immediately. Television became government-controlled under the guise of national well-being. Any opposition to Chavez was shut down, often violently. Chavez packed his courts full of supporters, relieving the duties of anyone who disagreed with him. A massive worker strike in the nation's oil plant, PDVSA, turned into an opportunity for Chavez to pack another government-run institution with supporters. 18,000 workers were fired and replaced with 100,000 Chavez loyalists. Chavez then began redirecting oil funds to social subsidies, which weakened PDVSA severely over the next several years, further crippling the nation's economy. From a security standpoint, police were challenged by armed groups known as colectivos, Again, I don't speak Spanish, just sorry. (laughs) These are groups Chavez thought helped control the threat of another protest uprising. History repeats itself. The situation gets way worse during the oil price dip of 2014. As I mentioned earlier, social bills like Chavez's and the ones of governments before him need to be paid. When oil prices dip, Venezuela suffers. In 2014, Chavez had, he dies. In 2014, Chavez dies and is succeeded by Nicolas Maduro. The government has big spending habits and no funds. Remember those food subsidies Chavez enacted in the Bolivarian missions? To save some money, the government drastically reduces those subsidized imports, leaving grocery shelves increasingly scarce. The combination of low supply, high demand, and already catastrophic inflation meant that the average Venezuelan can no longer afford their basic necessities. According to Bloomberg, a cup of coffee in Caracas, Venezuela's capital, could cost you more than 250,000 bolivars. To put this in perspective, in January of this year, 2020, in case, well, it's like December, so whatever. In January 2020... President Maduro announced the minimum monthly wage in Venezuela would be increased to 250,000 bolivars. To put all of this into even more perspective, a month's salary at the increased rate of 250,000 bolivars a month put side by side with the astronomical and ever-increasing inflation means that one month's wages in Venezuela can't even buy you one kilogram of meat. And for all you Americans out there, one kilogram is 2.2 pounds. In the U.S., a month's wages at the U.S. minimum wage, which many see as not enough to live on, can buy you well over 100 kilograms of meat. 
I hope this gives you a little more insight into how Venezuela got to where it is today. Maybe you're left with more questions than answers, but this podcast can serve as a jumping off point for your own research journey. There is a lot more to go over in Venezuelan history, and I left out a lot, but the scope of this podcast is small. It's meant to be more like a TLDR. We didn't even touch on the 2017 constitutional crisis or this present-day weird double president situation. But I just didn't think that those issues were as relevant to understanding this crisis from a humanitarian standpoint. And, you know, this question that I find is really big right now in the United States, at least with socialism, you know, is Venezuela at its breaking point because of socialism or was it something else? Um, So I chose to leave that stuff out for this. Anyway, Thanks for listening. Leave me a review. Shoot me an email with feedback or commentary. I'd really appreciate it. Just starting out any kind of critique or uh, praise or whatever would be awesome. Um, Share with a friend, all that good stuff. I'm not sure what we're going to tackle next. I'm thinking I might do the UAE because it would serve as kind of like a counterpoint to oil-rich countries, but I'm not 100% sure yet. I guess you'll find out next month. Stay tuned and thanks.